Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 316. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Show 316. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is a little bit of short fiction. It is Earth for Dummies by Letty Prell. Then we have the fact article. It is our very own Ames H. Sturgis with looking back at genre history, talking about that Millennium show. And actually, I've never been or even watched that, so I'll have a look at that. Then the main fiction is The Radioactive Etiquette Book by Marissa Lingen. There you go. That is what's coming in today's show. But before that... It's beginning of the month. Check out the art. Oh, you know, every month you must think, ah, he's trotty. He's always the same on the art. But honestly, it's like, it gets better for me. Do you know what I mean? And this is by the same artist that did, and this is the kind of what I quite like about, you know, just discovering artists and the different styles and different techniques and just how bloody good they are. This is the same artist, Sparth, from last month who did the... I forget what it's called. It was a spaceship in a hangar. You know, the kind of green tones, colours. Now, this one, and I forget, he, I don't think actually Sparth mentioned which which book it was, but it was from a French edition, edition of a Philip K. Dick novel. And just get a look of it, man. And, and it has got, as well, like a, a Gaelic feel. You know, the kind of, the setting is, I mean, set in the future. There's hover cars. Come on, what, what more do you want, man? But it has got that, and it's just got that taint, that the tones are just, and I put it away, you know, on Facebook and on Twitter and actually on uh, G Plus as well, and just phenomenal, you know, phenomenal, just phenomenal, you know, how many people has liked it. 
Again, this is, for me, science fiction. Do you know what I mean? I kind of like, you know, yes, we do play different things on Starship Sofa. You know what I mean? We're not, we're not frightened to dip with tours in the kind of a little bit fancy and a little bit this and that. But I love it, you know, when you kind of, you, you see a picture like that and it's just everything you kind of imagine science fiction or what you perceive to be science fiction. Do you know what I mean? So chuffed a bit to the spa. Thank you so much. I'll put a link, a link on and one of them as well. Hop over there and have a look and just check out his different work. And we're lucky enough to get another one, which is also another cover of a Philip K. Dick book as well. But I'll put that on sometime in the, in the future as well. So look out for that. Right then. Straight in with the short fiction and it's Earth for Dummies by Letty Perel. Letty Perel is the author of the novel Dragon Ring from Flying Pen Press. Her work has also appeared in Apex, Andromeda Spaceways, Infight Magazine, and Alfie's Kiss, and the Paranormal Underground. I'll put a link on to Letty's site as well, so do pop over there. It is narrated by... Excuse me, voice is going... <coughs> Excuse me, by Josh Roseman. And Josh, not the trombonist, and I'm not going to go right through his bio again, but Josh just recently did the Greener story, and it's getting a lot of stories published in Ashmov's as well, so do look out for Josh as well. Josh, thank you so much. What a great voice, lovely. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... Earth for Dummies, by Letty Prell. First, it is important to note there are myriad rules regarding food and food taboos, with eating customs varying widely among the dominant intelligent beings of the Earth planet. It is therefore advisable for Neverian tourists to keenly observe those around you, and act accordingly. For example, watch whether hands, utensils, or both are used when eating. With such complications in mind, we offer the following as general guidelines in this area, for they establish an overall frame of reference. It cannot be stressed enough that when visiting the dwellings of the dominant bipedal mammals, called Homo sapiens or humans, you should converse only with them, at least while they are present. Granted, the cetaceans, particularly the dolphins, are more interesting, understand us better, and have a keen sense of humor. However, communication with cetaceans and other creatures, even those termed pets, makes humans uncomfortable and in some cases, distrustful. On a related note, it is best to visit the oceans of Earth via boats or ships provided by humans. If you must swim, do so in locations removed from human observation. The oceans of Earth are beautiful, contain an ideal salinity suitable for drinking, and cover the majority of the planet. However, humans fear their oceans, a fact marked by their tales of monstrous beings inhabiting the depths. Hence, they are easily disturbed if we spend too much time swimming in ocean waters and joking with the cetaceans. They may begin worrying that Neverians are actually monstrous beings. One might wonder that, given their aversion to the oceans, humans would not mind if we colonized there. But humans are insecure regarding their position as the dominant species, and harbor an innate fear of invasion, as they term it. Suffice to say, this is a matter best left to our diplomats. For this reason, we urge all Neverians to observe proper etiquette when interacting with humans. We cannot jeopardize the strides we are making in this area. When visiting the dwellings of humans, 
Please note that food will be served at regular intervals in special dining areas. Normally, only deceased creatures will be served, and these will be carefully prepared in a manner pleasing to humans, which usually involves sustained heating of the deceased creature's flesh, sometimes in a seasoned broth. While there exists a peculiar stench surrounding such unusual preparation, the resulting meal is often surprisingly tasty. However, it is fortunate that particular foods known as sushi and sashimi are also available, for these normally consist of uncooked, raw, non-cetacean ocean creatures, and are thus well suited to the Navirian palate. Nonetheless, strive to avoid wasabi, or at least consume it in moderation. While tasty, wasabi has hallucinogenic effects for our kind. Humans are not affected in this manner. Having provided this general description of human food, it should come as no surprise to learn it is inappropriate to consume live creatures found in the human dwelling. Humans are fond of their so-called pets, and are quite protective of them. Other types of live creatures found in the dwelling are called infants and children. These creatures are not pets, but are actually immature humans. Remember that humans, as mammals, do not emerge fully formed from cocoons. Infants and children are stages in the normal human reproductive and growth cycle, and these stages are not considered unfortunate. Hence, when encountering infants and children, condolences are not to be offered. On the contrary, praise and admiration of the creature's beauty and other characteristics is the expected response. When complimenting the characteristics of infants and children, do not refer to their enticing odor. Humans perceive such remarks as threatening. Humans love to show off their dwellings and the things they have hoarded. It is polite to accept invitations to tour the home. This behavior has been thoroughly studied by Navirian behavioral specialists, sociologists, and anthropologists, and the collective wisdom regarding this is best expressed as, It's about blab. Click on hyperlink for a detailed discussion of the term blab and its related phrase, blah blah. The important thing to remember is, unlike Navirian artifacts, the objects humans hoard rarely hold deep spiritual or ancestral significance. It is therefore surprising how long humans will spend discussing these unimportant items. They blab and blab about the blah blah all over their shelves, in their recreation areas, even in their closets. It is considered polite to listen attentively, make statements of praise and admiration, even to encourage the human to blab yet more about the object at hand. Blab appears to be humans' chief means of achieving trust and goodwill among members of their own species, and so Navirians must participate in this behavior and similar rituals for diplomatic purposes. It has become popular for humans to request Navirians with which they have made friends to be overnight guests. This is another social ritual to further build trust and goodwill and also appears to be a way for individual humans to achieve higher status in the eyes of other members of their species. It is therefore important to consent to be an overnight guest when invited. One must not underestimate the dangers surrounding this activity, however, especially if there is wasabi in the dwelling.
Indeed, the chief danger of being an overnight guest is related to meals. Humans in the household must engage in a prolonged rest period, which normally occurs at night. During this period, which usually lasts between seven and nine hours, no meals are prepared. Some Neverians have attempted to fast during the human sleep cycle, but inevitably the instinct to feed asserts itself. It is important, however, to avoid any potentially destructive feeding frenzy during the human sleep cycle. Plant material and deceased prepared creatures may be found in the area of the dwelling called the kitchen, undoubtedly included on your tour of the home. These foodstuffs can be accessed through an activity called raiding the refrigerator, which humans consider an acceptable nighttime feeding strategy. However, during the nighttime, it is not uncommon for Neverians to lose their normal social sensibilities and forget learned behaviors, such as consuming only deceased prepared creatures. The presence of infants and children in the dwelling can exacerbate difficulties with conforming to learned social feeding behaviors because of the enticing odor of these immature humans. Should you inadvertently consume a living creature while serving as an overnight guest, the following actions are recommended, depending on the circumstances of your situation. A. If you are discovered in the act of consuming the creature, offer condolences. Expressions of grief and remorse are appropriate and expected. Click on hyperlink for a detailed discussion of the terms grief and remorse, including video of convincing examples of these emotions as performed by Neverians. B. If you consume the creature without interruption, the advisable action is to leave the dwelling immediately and proceed to the nearest ocean. Notify the Neverian embassy of the unfortunate event so that skilled experts may take appropriate action. Neverians have found that humans have some experience with other humans entering their dwellings without invitation and taking the lives of one or more creatures therein. In fact, detailed accounts of these events account for a large portion of the output of the human entertainment industry. In several cases involving the inadvertent consumption of living creatures, skilled Neverians have been able to alter the meal site to resemble a human murder scene. It is not advisable that you yourself attempt such alterations. We strongly advise limiting night activity to raiding the refrigerator. Doing so will avoid disrupting relations with humans and ensure an enjoyable stay on Earth. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Letty's. Letty, thank you so much. It was fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Josh, what can I say, sir? What can I say? I'll say something then, shall I? <laughs> thank you. So, next up is a little fact article. And it's, let's say, the beginning of the month. And we've got our Ames H. Sturgis, Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Long-time listeners to Starship Sofa may recall that a long, long time ago, back in Oral Delights episode number 37, that was August of 2008, how's that for a blast from the podcasting past, I talked about 
science fiction investigators, and my goal there was to trace an ancestry, a mostly literary ancestry, for the television characters of Mulder and Scully from the X Files. Well, that ancestry also applies very well to a character who was, in effect, family of Mulder and Scully. That is, investigator Frank Black. Of the also Chris Carter created television series Millennium, and today I'd like to give a tribute to Millennium, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite television series, and also shine a light on its current fan campaign because. I have been in fandom for a long, long time, and I've rarely been so impressed with fan activity. All right, so let's back up and talk about Millennium. Millennium ran for three seasons, from 1996 through 1999, on the Fox network in the United States. It was seen as related to, but separate from, the X Files. Conceived by the same creator, Chris Carter, as a means of saying things that he couldn't say in the X Files universe. The way it played out, Millennium became something of a composition with three separate movements, all revolving around the same central theme. That is the first season, which was run by Chris Carter himself. In the second season, Carter. Passed the torch to creative partners Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Morgan is probably best known, aside from Millennium, for Space Above and Beyond, and Wong is perhaps best known now for the current series American Horror Story. The third season went to Chip Johansson, who is known as one of the forces behind recent series such as Dexter and Homeland. This might sound like a recipe for artistic disaster—the sort of too many cooks in the kitchen problem—but in this particular case, it worked out very well because there was a common central core to the story, but coming at it from different angles really enhances the depth and texture of the series, in my opinion. And I should point out. Immediately, that another source of coherence for the series was composer Mark Snow. This was a series that was told、uh, in many cases through music and was heavily inspired by music and, and reflected in its musical score. And Mark Snow's particular talent really pulled that off in a, in a great way. At its heart, Millennium was about the nature of evil. What scares us? Why and how we can, if we can, combat it. This was strategically placed, as I pointed out. This ran from '96 to '99, so a new millennium was on its way, and it did harness some of the anxieties and fears that were building up around the year 2000 and 2001. But One of the fascinating things about the series is that it didn't lose its relevance when it turned out we made it to 2002 just fine.、Uh, in fact, the anxieties and fears that are addressed in the series are more relevant today, even than they were at the time that the series first aired. The series follows Frank Black. Played by Lance Henriksen, and if you know anything about genre television and film, you know who Lance Henriksen is. 
this part was written for him, and I don't think anyone else could have played Frank Black. He was an ex-FBI agent uh, and now a law enforcement consultant. His unique blend of empathy and experience allows him to put himself in the shoes and the minds of terrible killers. And we discover the series opening as Frank has moved his family, including his wife, social worker Catherine, and their young child, uh, little Jordan, their daughter, who's a preschooler, to Seattle, trying to start over again after he's had essentially a breakdown due to the darkness inherent in his job. He becomes a consultant with the Millennium Group, which is an organization originally based on some real-life organizations um, that include consultants of all kinds dealing with law enforcement and investigative procedure. Like Pose Dupin or Conan Doyle's Holmes, Frank Black is brought in when the police are a bit, or a lot, out of their depth. Now, this could easily have devolved into sort of a classic profiler, serial killer of the week kind of series. And and at the time, that still would have been pathbreaking. But this was so much more. Because in the same pilot episode where we discover that he is relocated to Seattle and is trying to sort of start over again, we learn that besides the religious fanatic serial killer who is trying to pave the way for the coming apocalypse and cleanse the planet in expectation of it. In fact, Frank Black has another nemesis, one much closer to home, a stalker who has been following his family, taking pictures of his wife and daughter. And it's clear by the end of the episode that this person is still following them, even though they've relocated across the country. This is an ongoing theme in the series that the barbarians have already passed through the gate, or in the words of Victoria Williams, that which you fear most could meet you halfway. The idea that it's already too late, and the best we can do is make a a great final stand against the forces of evil, but they're already here at home where we should feel most safe. And some of the most fascinating episodes include things like um, murders that occur within a gated community, so there's no place safe to go, or the murderer who inserts himself into a house while the real estate agent is having an open house and stays there and preys on the family when the family returns. It becomes increasingly mythology-based, increasingly metaphorical and existential. So we end up with episodes where a woman who may or may not be Satan is kidnapping promising youth. She's not trying to make good people go bad. She's trying to make exceptional people become mediocre. As the show continued, you could trace the development of its ideas by looking at the Millennium Group itself, the group for which Frank Black consults. In the first season, it appears to be a very scientifically based group of experts in forensic science. By the second season, Frank Black has stripped away some of the veneer of the organization and realizes that, in fact, this is a much, much older group, a group that has ties to such 
esoteric orders as, you know, the, the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons and others. This group not only has an agenda, but it also has a particular lens through which, an apocalyptic lens, through which its members are viewing the rise of violent crime internationally. Black has to piece together what he learns from a series of very unreliable sources, unreliable narrators, all of whom want something and something different uh, from him. And so it is a lasting mind game that's quite, quite fascinating. The Millennium Group is, in fact, at the heart of the most science fictional aspect of the show – which is introduced toward the end of the second season and its shadow looms large over the third season. That is an artificially created variant of the Marburg virus that infects a large number and kills a large number of people, including Frank's wife. The Millennium Group manages to have an antidote in a limited quantity that it uses to inoculate its own members, which raises all kinds of questions about uh, what kind of brave new world the Millennium Group is trying to create or inherit. In short, if there's no supernatural apocalypse, well, perhaps a man-made one will do. The third season finds Frank Black back across the country in Washington, D.C. with a new partner, Emma Hollis, and together, the two of them are battling not only uh, violent criminals on one side, but also the continued machinations of the Millennium Group on the other. As contrasting ideas about where evil comes from and what, if anything, we can do about it collide in the best possible dark night of the soul kind of way. This series really had everything, hard science, soft science, pseudoscience, mythology and legend, religious esoterica, just you name it. And these ingredients were combined and brought to bear on the big questions of humanity and the less than civilized, less than safe aspects of the world that we've created. Now, being a bleak, dystopian kind of gal who's very interested in the questions of good and evil and what heroism looks like in a less-than-black-and-white world in various shades of gray, well, I've been a fan of this show ever since it first aired, and I was first in line to get the DVD complete set when it came out. So imagine my delight in discovering the Back to Frank Black campaign the headquarters online are backtofrankblack.com. This is a fan campaign to bring back Millennium, whether it is in the form of a miniseries or a film or what have you. And as such, it has some of the classic ingredients of a fan campaign, including letter writing and blogging and activity to prove that there is an audience still for this story. But it really has harnessed 21st century technology and creativity in a way I've rarely seen before. For example, the campaign has spawned a podcast that has reunited all of the major actors from the series, as well as show creator Chris Carter and showrunners Glenn Morgan, James Wong, Chip Johansson, 
composer Mark Snow, and so many others. And so this podcast, with its extensive in-depth interviews of the artists in front of and behind the camera for all three seasons of Millennium, really created a rich oral history documentation of the series and its genesis, its creation, implementation, and lasting legacy. It's quite remarkable. And in 2012, the campaign also spawned the creation of a book, a beautiful 510-page doorstop of a book called Back to Frank Black, A Return to Chris Carter's Millennium, edited by Adam Chamberlain and Brian A. Dixon. And this is a gorgeous tribute. It includes interviews with, uh, again, the actors and the creators, introductions by Lance Henriksen and Chris Carter themselves, but also a series of scholarly essays by experts looking into all aspects of the series, from its use of music to its symbolism to the way it fits into the larger genre tradition. The book as a whole is a serious argument for and a lasting celebration of the importance of and the achievements of Millennium. Most recently, the campaign has held a trailer contest in which fans competed to create the best trailer to show what a return of Frank Black might look like. The winning entry was scored by original series composer Mark Snow with that unmistakable signature sound of the series, and it's really shiver-inducing. Just well done. My hope is, as someone who loves the series and in fact teaches the series, I use Millennium in certain courses with my undergraduate and graduate students, that this campaign will be successful in giving us a final installment in the Millennium story, whether that's in film or television or some other medium. But even if it doesn't achieve this, I think the campaign is remarkable for having produced a very comprehensive and accessible history of the show, of every aspect of the show, and successfully drawing sincere and capable scholarly attention to the series. So I take my hat off. That's not metaphorical. I'm actually wearing a hat. I take my hat off to the organizers of the Back to Frank Black campaign and the actors and writers and directors and producers and others who have contributed to it. And I encourage you to check out Millennium on DVD, whether you've seen it before or you were new to the series, because I firmly believe that these many years after its original run, it still has a great deal to challenge us with and to say to us. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a fantastic new year, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. There you go. Like I say, I've never watched Millennium there, so it's, it's, how am I going to get it? Hmm, how will I get that show? Oh, I don't know. I'll try. <laughs> Ames, thank you so much. And don't forget, Ames is doing that course. 
the Myth God Institute. You know what I mean? I'll, again, I'll put a link on there as well. And actually, Amos dropped an email. She's actually doing, there's a free online course as well, an educational event based on the Hunger Games. So look out for that as well. But nearer the time, I will tell you about that as well. Next up is the main fiction, and it is the Radioactive Etiquette book by Melissa Lingen. A short heads up about Melissa. Melissa is a freelance writer who lives in Minnesota with two large men and one small dog. There you go. I'll put a link on to Melissa's site. This story is narrated by Iba Am- Amicus. Yes, I got that. I'm, I have got that right. It don't even start. Iba has done a number of narrations for Starship Sofa as well. And like I say, emerging filmmaker from Seattle. So, so the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. The Radioactive Etiquette Book by Marissa Lingen. The district director's teenage children could have been worse. Sork could think of a dozen ways in which they could have been worse. Snooty, apathetic, destructive, immature. Well, she was sure there were at least eight more somehow. They were instead resourceful, curious, intelligent, and intrepid. Which, up until that moment, Sork would have sworn she would prefer to them being comfortable dullards. But at that moment, the third of them, Jens, the smallest, was not answering the door of his stateroom, nor yet his comm unit, making it a unanimity. They had all gone off somewhere and not told Sor where. She sometimes wondered whether humanity had kept garters around just to threaten unwary junior diplomats with having their guts for them. Difa, she calmed her aid, please tell me that the district director's kids are in the office waiting for me. Why should they be? said Difa. Shit, said Sor. Chapter 4, Section 17, said Difa automatically. The section on vulgarity accepted in use by diplomats below ambassadorial rank, which, Sor began to think, would be herself for the rest of her career when they were in a foreign sector, such as Sector 82, got quoted a lot, particularly when Sor and Megnib were around. Particularly by Difa, who took a certain sick pleasure in correcting her superiors. I piss on Section 17, said Sor. Find me those kids. Shall I calm the local... No, do not calm the local police, said Sor. Do not calm the local government. Do not put out a bulletin on the feeds. Just find them. I wait your instructions, ma'am, said Difa stiffly. Sor counted to twelve. Found she was still angry. Counted to twelve again. Mostly, humanity had not retained the use of nails, but she knew what they were. They were what she was ready to spit. I'll be there as soon as the air cars can get me there, she said. It was still technologically impossible to throttle Difa through her comm unit, but Sor had every hope that the Empire's best scientists were working on the problem. Sor's office could not be the oasis she would want it to be. It had to harmonize, according to Chapter 2, Section 71, with the local standards of office decor. That meant it was brilliantly orange to energize workers and featured spiky decor to send their thoughts off into unexpected directions. Sora was from a cooler sky to begin with and spent her work days secretly calling up screens of lakes, oceans, and giant green trees where no visitors or supplicants could see them. The book ruled Sora's life from the time she left her stateroom until she returned at night. And even then, she was required to be careful of how she exposed the exteriors of her life and thoughts to the sector personnel. But for imperial diplomats, the brilliantly green, 
improbably hard copy book known to the diplomatic corps as the radioactive etiquette book was the first and last resource. If you could argue that your solution to a diplomatic problem was by the book, you might not get commended, but you certainly wouldn't get demoted. Much though the entire volume frustrated Zor, her least favorite page was the last one, the imprinting on the inside of the bilious green cover, which read in large black letters, Use your best judgment. She wanted to put a giant print of the last page above Diva's desk, as her assistant had never once shown the virtue of initiative. But the contents of the radioactive etiquette book were considered imperial secrets, not to be displayed even inside the Empire, much less in foreign protectorates such as Sector 82. For something so ridiculously central to be so ridiculously secret was a great frustration to Sor. But she kept telling herself that the life of a junior diplomat was by far more interesting than mining or farming, or ministers forbid a cultural post. Her parents had been cultural, and all of her aunts and uncles and the cousins too numerous to count. Her younger brother was cultural, a dancer in four different styles, one of them requiring a rebreather. Not sore. Never. Not while there was a breath in her body. Not even if the alternative was vacuum in her body. The flame-shaped air cars of Sector 82, Diplomatic Station, were as uncomfortable as they were unaerodynamic, but they eventually returned her to her office. To her relief, Megnib had returned, so she didn't have to deal with Difa alone. Report, she said, stalling for time on the problem of the district director's offspring. The methane breathers are uh, contented with the new treaty, said Megnib. They uh, think it'll help them against... Look, I took notes. I'll calm them to you. I can't remember the name of every methy race we're not allied with. I can't remember the name of every methy race we are allied with, said Difa. And Sor and Magnib rolled their eyes in unison. We know you can't, said Sor. Difa was their trial. She never talked about her family, but from her file, Sor could tell that she was the child of someone powerful. Educated in all the right places, competent at most things, and never excelling at anything. And now that she'd been dropped into Sor's lap for Sor to mentor, Difa had not shown any further signs of excellence at anything except driving her superiors crazy with her memory for regulations. It was good to have a talent in life, she supposed. The vacuum dwellers are harder, said Megnib. We have three of them lined up to negotiate for the mining rights to Sector 83, and they all have strong advantages as allies. They all engineered themselves from planet-dwelling races to cope with space environments more efficiently when their planets started having environmental problems, so they all have residual attachments to ships as places to travel faster and bring stuff longer distance. That gives us a way to negotiate some common ground, at least. Much easier than the ones who have shed even those ties with their kind, even though they're all deeply, deeply weird. The downside is they're all already allied with someone opposed to by one of our allies. Hell, said Sor. Chapter 4, Section 12, said Difa triumphantly. Sor raised an eyebrow at her. You could turn that memory to our allies. It would serve you much better instead. Or, if you're that keen on the radioactive etiquette book, you could pull it out and see what it has to say on our missing diplomatic dependence in the protectorate sector. Missing what? said Megnib. The little wretches, said Sor. 
Are you sure they're not kidnapped? suggested Megnib. Who'd want them? said Sor wearily, then took a deep breath and continued. No, of course I'm not sure. I'm hoping like hell and trying like hell to be mad at them. And yes, Difa, I know what the chapter and what the section you just told me. Because if they're little idiots who've run off on their own, we have one very limited set of problems to deal with. Whereas if someone has kidnapped three healthy, hearty, unbearably energetic teenagers, then we are in the soup in more ways than I care to think of. I can't find it, said Difa. Look in the index, said Sor. Under diplomatic dependence, I'm sure it'll be there. No, I can't find it, said Difa. It's not in your desk. It's not in the lock cabinet. It's not here. Did you leave it at home? No, I did not bloody leave it at home, said Sor. I didn't take it home. How could you memorize personal conduct sections to plague me with if I didn't leave it here for your perusal? Perhaps Magnib borrowed it, said Difa. I, said Magnib, spend enough of my days on regulations and their applications without having to spend my night shifts on it also. Nor am I the one quoting at length from the wretched thing at the drop of a cat. Hat, said Difa. Sor giggled, and her junior looked at her as if she had gone mad. Sor was not a giggler. Ancient literary reference, said Sor. Don't mind me. So, to recap, we appear to be missing the three children of the district director, entrusted to us for an edifying holiday, and also the manual of the diplomatic service, which we are under no circumstances to release to protectorate peoples, much less potential allies, and also the vacuum dwellers are making our lives a tangled mess. Am I missing something? There's the local aviation festival, said Difa. I don't know why you seem to react to festivals as though there are problems, but you do. Give yourself another three years on the job, said Magnib. At this rate, she won't have another three years on the job, said Sor, because we'll all be strung up by our thumbs and left for dead for losing those witless kids. Difa burst into tears. Sora regarded her with exasperation and wondered why on earth she was cursed with a subordinate who wanted comforting for things that were perfectly ordinary for people to say in a conversation. Be sensible, said Sora. And that helped Difa to calm down as much as a person could reasonably expect it might. There, there, said Magnib. Probably they'll only leave Sora for dead. Oh, thank you, said Sora. And Difa continued her wailing unabated. So reflected that this would be a very good time for one of them to spot the book, peeking out from behind one of the ridiculously spiky sculptures, or to have the district director's children burst into the door full of good spirits and energy and local cuisine that had not been vetted by anybody relevant. Of course, none of those things happened. Difa, said Sor sharply, go search my apartment, look only for the children or the book. Anything you find that is not the children or the book is none of your business. Leave it where you found it. Of course, said Difa. I'm not a sneak. Magnib, said Sor, ignoring her. You complete a list of the pros and cons for the vacuum dwellers and set up meetings for me with each of their leaders or local representatives or spiritual trustees, whatever. I just want to see what we're choosing among. It may come down to someone's gut, but if we can find a good rationale for our decision, that would be much better. As for me, I'm going to try and figure out what we know about these children and where they might have gone if they're on their own. 
And also, we know about their parents and who their enemies might be if it's not just a random anti-imperial kidnapping, said Magnib. And that, said Sor. And who might want the book? Difa said. Sor breathed in through her nose and out through her mouth. Difa, she said. There are imperial secrets in that book. There's a reason it's only in hard copy, where no one can hack it. That book tells when it's acceptable for an imperial officer to kill fewer than five people personally, and when more than 100,000 casualties are acceptable. It gives the official ratio of allies to imperial citizens in hostage negotiations. If you read past the personnel section, you'd see that anyone and everyone in the known sector would very much like to get their hands on that book. And we have to make sure that they don't. Her junior sent off on their errands. Sor started going through the director's children's profiles. She had told Difa to look at them before the children arrived, to come up with activities the teens might enjoy. But Sor herself had too much to do to spend more than a token amount of time showing them a good time. She had planned to dine with them twice, the regulation amount of time together, and leave them to the supervision of Difa, Megnib, and a hired local potentate who wanted to cultivate trade and hoped that their mother could put in a good word for her with the other districts. The downside of this plan was making itself abundantly clear. The eldest, Lib, would reach her initial majority in another two standard months' experience time. Sor had not seen enough of her to know whether she resented being shipped off with her younger brothers, as though she was still a child, rather than being sent on a diplomatic tour of her own. She had a record of interest in cultural activities. Sor made a face and was on the deep-sea diving team at their educational collective, which was no risk whatsoever in a region so devoid of deep seas as Sector 82. Unless, Sor thought, it revealed a daredevil nature, but most educational collectives handled deep-sea diving so safely that the most reckless students were hardly drawn to it more than tennis or mackie ball. The middle child, Reeker, was apparently a social butterfly, The records could not specify whether his many club memberships were an attempt to follow in his mother's footsteps as a politician, or whether he simply liked to have a good time with pleasant companionship. None of his clubs appeared to have branches on planet, nor had he attempted to put in for the teen clubs that did offer temporary memberships to visitors. Still, it was worth a look there also. Jens, whose room had decided her on their disappearance, was only 13 standard, an age sore often found trying, but he had seemed like a nice enough little sprout, especially when his sister sat on him frequently for bits of social obliviousness. He had not apparently decided on any one obsession. His record was a patchwork of small child fascinations, volcanoes and vacuum hockey and gambling groups and batteries and puppets and glider flying. Sore sucked in her breath. That was a lead if she'd ever seen one. Perhaps the little wretch had decided he wanted to see the festival up close perhaps tuck a glider pilot into a ride, rather than watch everyone else have fun. If he'd teased his older sibs long enough, they might have agreed to go to keep the peace in the family. It was better than she'd feared she would do, with the rest of the mishmash of abandoned interests. She went to the glider pilots first, readying for the festival. They were only mildly tolerant of an imperial diplomat nosing around asking questions. They all clearly had somewhere better to be but they could get into serious trouble for ignoring an imperial officer, even one who was dodging proper channels for some inscrutable imperial reason. Their godly painted vehicles struck sore as the height of tackiness, but perhaps they would show up better from the ground 
than something more tasteful would. Finally, one of them lost his patience and told Sor that they didn't have time or energy to deal with her so soon before the festival started, much less a hypothetical troublesome pack of adolescents sticking their noses into the works. Chastened, she went on to the diving societies, shallow though they were. Their representatives didn't have the festival to busy them, and were, as a result, very pleased to tell her everything she might wish to know and more, except that what they knew was nothing at all about a group of three young people looking to go diving. As she was preparing to try one of the social clubs after all, she got a calm signal from Megnib. I uh, have the first of your vacuum dweller meetings set up for around luncheon, he said. They don't, of course, eat luncheon, but you can have a sandwich before you go in. Lovely, thank you, said Sor. Ping me again in half an hour before I'm supposed to be there. Make it 40 minutes so I can dress. Fine, but we have a problem, said Megnib over the comm. I don't want to hear about problems, Megnib. I want to hear about solutions. I'm sorry, he said. But the solutions are... The book has the solutions, and we don't have the book. What are you talking about? We have parameters we have to set up for atmosphere and pressure and all those compromises when we're meeting a non-oxy-breathing species, said Megnib. And they're all in the book, said Sor. Damn. Well, consult with public records. See what the vac suckers need on a purely biological basis. It may be that courtesy demands some kind of compromise, but we're just going to have to wing it on what that is. Send them DEFA without the benefit of a pressure suit. Don't tempt me, said Megnib. And for heaven's sake, don't call them vac suckers where she can hear you, or you'll get a treatise on respecting other sentience. She's on the other channel updating me on the contents of your spice cabinet and asking me what you might cook with them. Ministers and astrogators swore sore. With feeling, despite the regulation need. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nature of the oath. And then, to take advantage of Deepa's absence. And also, chaos and damnation. Did she really think I'd have left the book in the pantry? Tell her to check 
your quarters and her own when she's done and hasn't found it in mine. Well, do, said Megnib, though his usual relationship with his superior did not preclude telling her to go do it herself. Sir wondered exactly how panicked she sounded. And as for the parameters, just go with whatever is the minimum for their needs, said Sor. Let them do most of the compromising. They're the supplicants. The imperial humans had discovered, as their territory expanded and contracted and tripped over itself and met itself in relativistic paradoxes, that their best allies were not the oxygen breathers like themselves. The greater commonality that xenotheorists had assumed would bring an ability to relate and communicate had also brought competition for resources, often irreconcilable, with peaceful coexistence, for the cultures were usually both too similar and too different to make their common ground in any way literal. Instead, the wiser spacefaring races made alliances with those more incomprehensibly alien. People who could share systems, asteroid belts, and sometimes even planets. For they needed to do such completely different things with the space that they could drive off another's enemies without stepping on each other's toes. Sometimes, as with the local gas giant populations, alliances practically form themselves, with obvious advantages to both populations and no noticeable disadvantages. Except, of course, that extremely strange aliens could lead one to war without very much notice that one could make sense of. This was the sort of minor hazard with which spacefaring empires found they had to deal. It was far better, far easier, and far more workable in the long term than the alternative. Sor was used to tweaking the parameters provided in the book for dealing with non-humanoid races, not making the whole thing up from scratch. She hoped the Empire would back her, but then she didn't know of much she could do but hope and keep looking. At her third youth social club, a garish thing with pink and yellow zigzags on the facade, she saw a familiar face. Reeker, the middle child of the director, was drinking fruit drinks with some local teens deep in conversation. Reeker, said Sor, and the local teens looked at her and then at him. Oh, it's you, uh... Sor said Sor, the head diplomat of your homeland in this sector, for my pains. His new friends slouched away, curiosity trampled by officialdom. Reeker peered miserably at her. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause trouble. I just wanted some time to do what I like and not always Lib and the kid. I suppose she's furious with me. Where is your sister, said Sor. Reeker blinked, too confused to respond. Your sister, Sor pressed. Your brother. Where are they? Where did you see them last? Your assistant, Megdib. Megnib, said Sor. Yeah. He dropped us off at our rooms last night for bed, and I said goodnight to them, and I slipped out this morning. Why? What's going on? I couldn't find any of you, said Sor. We're all looking. The only reason we didn't tell sector personnel was that we didn't want it to be a major diplomatic incident. Do you think there's a chance that each of you sneaked off to do what you like without the others? That would make my life so much easier. Reeker thought it over and shook his head. No, Jens maybe, but not Lib. She knows she could just make us do what she wanted anyway. There'd be no reason for her to sneak off. Unless she just wanted to not be saddled with younger brothers? Who would she boss then? said Reeker. Lib is miserable with no one to boss. At home, she bosses father, and the collective has made her captain of a dozen things. 
So she gets to boss nearly everyone who cares about the things that she does. So you feel sure they're together, said Sor. Riker looks suddenly miserable. I don't know. I just can't see Lib running off like that. Not ever. No matter what Jen teased her with. I'm sorry, I just can't. She'd have shown up in your offices and told you just exactly what she wanted if your plans weren't to her liking. I'm sorry. No, that's all right, said Sor. If it's true, it's true, and we'll just have to work with it. Who would take my brother and sister? Reeker looked even more miserable. Do you think they wanted me too? It's hard to guess what they might have wanted, said Sor. It's probably not a good idea to even try and focus on it. I'm going to take you to Magnib to keep you safe. He'll get some guards to stay with the two of you. I'm afraid it won't be much fun, but we can't lose you as well. I understand. I've had protective custody before. Sor regarded him with wordless sympathy. She might not feel all that suited to her parents' life as culturals, but she couldn't fathom a childhood that would leave a 15-year-old used to protective custody, ready to submit to it without a murmur or a whimper of fear. She could admire the young man's bravery, the little fool, wandering off to a strange club by himself on a strange planet, but the need for it made her flinch. By the time they reached her office, Magnib had hired a firm of particularly reliable guards. Sorcom Difa. How's the search coming? I, uh, haven't found the book, said Difa, but I have some other evidence that might be relevant. Other evidence, Sor repeated. Grand. Is my place clear? I'll bring the evidence in. If I'm in my appointment with the Vac Dwellers, don't bother me with it until I'm out again, said Sor. We have one of the kids. If my place is clear, Magnum will stash him there until we can find his siblings. He apparently just wandered off, but he feels sure they wouldn't have. Oh, said Difa, you have a lot of... So I will call him you later, said Zor, cutting off the connection. Magnib and the guards went off, leaving Sor with the hastily reset audience chamber. She checked the parameters before going in. It looked like this particular set of vac dwellers ought to be able to handle a more or less human standard atmosphere and pressure with only moderate discomfort if they wore the little containment modules for their slight expulsions of propulsion gases, and modifying it was unlikely to bring them greater comfort. The gravity controls were the area where they could compromise, so there was only microgravity in the chamber. Sor took an anti-nausea pill, thought about it, and took one for the headache also. There was no time for more than that before the first fact-dweller pairing arrived. They were radically different in size and shape, and in fact, Sor would have mistaken them for one entity had she not been properly informed by their translators that they were to be addressed separately, as symbolic life stages of the same race, but not the same individual. The first was a small red blob, like a particularly large and hard-sized blood blister, and the second seemed to be comprised entirely of hard, yellow, jointed limbs and eyes. The little soft poofs over the joints were, Sora understood from her reading, the containment modules, since the gases they emitted to change direction and velocity in vacuum might be minute, but were not always safe for oxygen breathers. The creatures were nearly twice as tall as she was. Upon examination, Sora wondered how the symbiosis was achieved in the vacuum, but that was far too personal a question for the first meeting. Greetings, one and two, she said for their names were not designated for sound and could not have vocal indications, and they found it less offensive to be addressed by number than given an arbitrary noise they would never be able to hear. 
I look forward to an enlightening conversation about potential alliances between our races. The little transponder on their skin, their skins, pulse the message into their own language and reply to her more quickly than Sora would have thought reasonable. We seek enlightenment in all things. Oh, good, said Sora wearily. All things. Well, let's start with alliances, shall we? I understand that you have no oxygen breather alliances at the moment. All things are fleeting, replied the translator. Great, said Sor. Let's talk about your fleet then. What are your attitudes towards arming mining ships? Or, conversely, how do you feel about using mining equipment as armaments? That which is within cannot come without without protection. Without, without, said Sor. We are without, said the translation device. Then it used a different voice to say, We have uses for things within. Sora began to wish that she'd brought along someone, anyone, to whom she could have made snide and panicked remarks. I am so glad you have uses for things within, she said wearily. That forms the basis of an alliance or trade relationship. The vacuum dwellers did not seem to find this to be a worthy comment, so Sora plunged on. If you have a proposal for terms on the issue of how many ships your fleet might contribute to a protective alliance in Sector 71, for example, to protect, no, to strive, said the translation device, no, to begin, Sor began to wonder whether they would ever settle on a verb, to indicate, worthy sentience, she said, in her best diplomatic voice, perhaps we could benefit from a mediating translator. In fullness, we greet you, said the translation device. Oh, good, Sor exclaimed. In fullness, I greet you back. The beauty is not easily contained, in part. I have found that myself, but regarding the possibility of a mediating party. The radiant entity rotates to surfeit. This is not getting any better, said Sor. Is your translator perhaps broken? I seriously doubt that you're enjoying this more than I am. Interrogatory sentence, said the translator. What is that, automatic translation for who the hell knows what they wanted to ask? This seemed to galvanize the back dwellers. Enemy from afar is opposed with good friendship. Or rather, said Sor, taken aback. Yes, alliance, that's what we're talking about. Far-dwelling differences are acute with possibility... I have often thought so, said Sor gravely. In Sector 71, for example, what kind of acute possibilities? Brightly and not horrific. Okay, said Sor. I think we're done here. The fact dwellers might have been looking at her in confusion. With the number of apparent eyes on two and the complete lack of apparent eyes on one, she found it nearly impossible to tell. Additional translation is required she said loudly. You go now. Vacate the premises. Depart my company. Come back with additional translation for the benefit of both parties. They did leave, which was something of a relief to her. But she couldn't tell whether the request for additional translation assistance had found any receptive ear, nose, or other orifice. Nor was she clear on how she would find out, except by either seeing them again, or not. It didn't seem very satisfactory at all. 
Not the sort of thing that was likely to result in anybody getting a commendation or promotion. Not even the sort of thing that would get her a satisfactory review on her next posting. And then there was the question of the Empire's ongoing aims, which would not be furthered by giving up on negotiations with a potential ally. But without effective communication, who knew what she'd be agreeing to? Her calm went off. How are, uh, the negotiations? asked Magnib. Wretched, said Sor. Nobody declared war that I know of, but I'm not sure that I'd know the difference if they had. Can you talk to the Sprout? said Magnib. He's fussing. About what? Everything, said Magnib. But particularly his sibs. Sor sighed. Put him on. I just keep on thinking that this isn't like them, said Reeker. And I just keep thinking, why not me? Why would someone kidnap the two of them and leave me? That's a good question, said Sor. I'd been thinking you'd already gone out to the social club by the time they came around for you, but I'll go look at the room just in case there's evidence that they tried to break in and failed. And if they didn't, said Reeker eagerly, and then stopped. Then we have to figure out why they didn't want me. Put Magnib back on, said Sor. Magnib leaned into the transmission. Still here, Sor. We found nothing about any enemies their parents might have. Their parents appear to be immensely popular personally, said Magnib, and entirely orthodox politically. Damn, said Sor. And then she and Magnib chorus in unison. For For section section 12. 12. What? said Reeker. Regulations, said Sor. Never mind. The point is, Megnib? Yeah? The point is that he should cheer up, isn't it? It was my point, said Megnib. I know you're doing everything you can to find his sibs. Yes, and will you tell that kid that there is nothing to be ashamed of in not being kidnapped? Sor fought for an expression of disgust that was sufficiently mild not to be covered in Chapter 4, Section 17. She didn't come up with any. I mean to say, she finished lamely, that we don't even know that they were kidnapped. If he simply wandered off, maybe his sibs did too. He finds that highly unlikely, ma'am, said Megnib, over the noise of the squawking teenage boy. So do I, said Sora wearily. All right, well, keep him calm, keep him in that location, and I will investigate the room. They had looked before, but Sor looked again herself, very closely and carefully. She took a scanner to the locking mechanism in case someone had tried to tamper with the panel that contained the built-in detection circuits, but the entire unit appeared to be normal. There were no strange substances on the door, the frame, or the floor, and when she entered the override pattern and the door slid back, the room showed no more disarray than occupation for a week by a teenage boy was wont to produce. Sor stood hipshot for a moment, trying to see any pattern or problem. Finally, she gave up and returned to her audience. Difa was waiting, shifting impatiently from one foot to the other, holding a plain canvas bag. In your quarters, I found... All right, Difa, show me the evidence, Sore sighed. Difa started pulling things out of the bag. Well, in your pantry, I found... Why did you even look in the pantry? I was searching everywhere, Difa explained patiently. If I'd come back and hadn't looked in your wardrobe... Oh, thank you very much, said Sor. 
Then you'd have left the book there and been mad at me. I didn't leave the book anywhere, said Zor. To her surprise, Deefen nodded vigorously. I know! I checked! And I think you got ambushed and drugged and robbed. You think I... Zor took a deep breath. Let's see the evidence. You had a fresh bottle of painkillers in the medicine cabinet, said Deefa. Probably you were dealing with the headaches that came from the drugs they gave you wearing off. Or I twisted my ankle and used up all the old analgesics I had, said Zor. You had a crumpled up scarf in the back of your closet, probably used to tie you up while they looked for the book. I, Deefa, I'm just not good with laundry. Seriously, you can check my logs. There aren't any missing chunks of time. Twelve minutes, three days ago, said Deefa promptly. What drug works for 12-minute intervals? I don't know. I'm not an expert. Deefa, I'm a poor housekeeper who just got over a twisted ankle. I'm not the victim of a nefarious plot. Deefa leaned forward. Then where is your handbook? That's what I sent you to find out. Well, I couldn't find it. Sora rubbed her temples. And since you're such a great detective, if you couldn't find it, Deepa sniffed. You haven't been nice to me this whole time. I don't appreciate it. I'm trying to help. And I find your crazy storytelling about my life completely unbelievable. They glared at each other for a moment. And then Sora's calm beeped again. What? She demanded of it. There's a lead on the kids, said Megnib. The guards changed shift, and one of them told me what he's heard. The guard, it transpired, when Soren Difa could question him in a classic good cop, inane cop fashion, had heard of the methane breathers of Epsilon Monoceros, making off with two masked humans, possibly small ones. Sor, warrant in hand, strode to the methy-safe quarter with her breathing mask at the ready. I want to search your room, she said without preamble, to the bumpy, yellow-brown face who answered the door. It was at least bilaterally symmetric, which Sor counted some comfort. My dear madam, it said, whatever could you want such an extraordinary thing for? I have word that Sor remembered her job with a rush. I have word that one of our foolish youngsters may be disturbing the peace of your people. Of course, if such a thing were to happen, we would have to remove such a young interloper forthwith. For the mutual, amiable relations between us, of course. Three of the methy breathers' six eyes blinked theatrically. Good gracious, I would think I would know of such a thing, but by all means, if our mutual, amiable relationships are threatened, make your examinations with all due speed. So regarded him with narrowed eyes. He seemed better translated than the other aliens she'd dealt with, better spoken even, than most of the humans she'd encountered. Was that due to recent exposure with human teens who could improve the translation matrix? Or were they merely better aligned in conceptual formation than most races? She wanted to hold on to her suspicions, but she feared this was just another time that rumor had led her astray. Still, she felt that peering through drafts and breezes of the methane atmosphere was the better part of valor, as long as she was there. The Monoceran ambassador showed her every corner of their suite, and it was very much the same as the comparable suites in the oxygen-breathing quarters, so Sor felt reluctantly sure that there were no secret compartments, no devious plots to hide two young humans. 
I am so pleased we could oblige you in this endeavor, said her guide. Do you think that perhaps notifying other races so that all species of goodwill might aid you in your... I think we'll be fine, said Sor, trying to keep her tone of voice even and pleasant, in case this race of methy breathers could read human tonality. Thank you so much for your assistance. I apologize for the inconvenience. The monoceran leaned towards her conspiratorially. While we are not your allies, we wish you no harm. You may wish to look into whether all in the methane-breathing quarters feel the same, diplomat Sor. Thank you once again for your assistance, said Sor. As she walked through the swirling methane on her way to the airlock, she tried to think of what would make sense. Scouring every quarter of the methane-breathers' quarters would take long enough that anyone who had kids would hear word of it and be able to move them somewhere else. Not only that, it would probably cause a major diplomatic incident with at least one allied race, and several who had not been hostile so far. Sora really didn't want that to change on her watch. She also didn't want to ignore the possibility of getting Lib and Jens back. Megnib, she calmed as soon as she was out of the methane sector. Can you find out exactly where the guard heard this and what was said? I'm on it, boss, said Megnib. A few minutes later, he calmed her back. It was our newest methy breather allies. I guess they're trying to do us a favor. Sor snorted. More likely they were trying to set us up to think of them as the good guys. Megnib clicked his tongue against his teeth thoughtfully. You think they set up the kidnapping and rumors? I do think so, said Sor. But they'd have been too smart to keep the kids themselves. They'd have stashed them somewhere probably with an obvious culprit, so they look good to us. So there's just all the station, basically. Right, we're back where we started. Except we know it's not the Monoceran quarters. That's a help, at least. And the new What's-It, our allies, are some kind of lead. Sword desperately tried to remember what the radioactive etiquette book had to say about accusing allies of kidnapping and conspiracy. Surely there was an entire section on it, after place settings and before communications outside the Ansible network. But Sora couldn't remember a single word, if she'd ever skimmed it. It was an article of faith that the book explained how to do everything. She feared this was a case of the dreaded last page, using her own best judgment. She calmed station security. I am hoping for your utmost discretion, she said. Verily, said the security head. Sor rubbed her temples. Were all the auto-translators set to stun today? Prithee, make your needs known unto me. We have some visiting children, said Sor. They've gone missing. I don't want to go on the public record about their disappearance, if it turns out to be nothing to worry about. We will assist you with the utmost acuity available, gentle sentient, said the security head. Sor hoped it was some damn good acuity. There is a particular methane-breathing race, the... She checked her notes. The Felbjorn 37 group. We wish to know which other races they have had contact with in the last 24 hours. Will your security allow for this information? There is substantial material risk to a miner, said the security head. Sor confirmed it, calming him the details of the two miners' identities. She waited. She had been on Sector 82's station long enough to be able to read the Goldford natives' emotions fairly well. They were not only fellow oxygen breathers, 
but even very much akin to mammals, though from a different evolutionary chain. The security head was sympathetic enough that Sor expected her request to be approved. It was. Cameras were, of course, banned in diplomatic spaces, had been for millennia. But there was a record of the airlock use, and there was only one race that had been in and out recently enough to matter. Sor groaned when she saw it. It had been hard enough to communicate with them the first time, about treaty language. Would they even understand what she was accusing them of? On the other hand, did they even know it was wrong? Would they return the children right away once she explained it to them? One and two returned promptly, at least something looking just like them did, and Sor hoped that meant eagerness to please her, possibly eagerness for alliance, but with the vac dwellers, it might just mean they had nothing better to do at the moment. Greetings once again, said Sor. Translations improve with time, said the translator, and from the movements involved, Sor was pretty sure two was the one feeding its speech. Thank God, said Sor, grateful that Difa was not with her to correct her and then afraid that it would distract the back-dwellers into theology. Have you... We are searching for... There is a problem with... Oh, dear. We wanted to see the human young, said Two, through its voice synthesizer. We wanted to see how they would act when they're not being controlled and driven, and they could see us, and they could improve our translation. Wonderful, said Sor, too relieved to shake him by the shoulders for his artlessness. Everyone will have a chance to see everyone. Where are they? We gave them to one of you. A human, said Sor. Which human? We don't know, said Two. A planet dweller. Perhaps a human. Perhaps not. You are all so squishy. So hard to differentiate. Related to each other. Sor frowned. Had anyone checked whether vac dwellers had a DNA equivalent? It seemed necessary, and yet equivalent could mean so many things many of them not even remotely close to each other. Can you describe any properties of the entity to whom you gave them? It appeared to be pondering. It was almost certainly bilaterally symmetrical, it said finally. Within parameters, nearly so. Slight deviations such as your own. Thank you for your assistance, said Sor because that is what diplomats said to foreign nationals, instead of screaming at them for being too stupid to live. If you remember anything further, please do say. But in the future, if you wish to observe human young, we would appreciate you going through official channels. Humans are a species that raise and nurture their young, and unsolicited removal of juveniles can make us quite agitated. Understood said Two. At one point in our history, we also nurtured our young. We recall the oddities it can produce. We appreciate your tolerance of our little foibles, said Sor. She felt good on the whole about ushering the vac dweller out, smiling all the way and not beating its hard carapace with her shoe until it cracked. Sor decides she needs something to calm herself. Nearly anything would do, as long as it didn't involve a translation device, or anything else going missing. It would be better if she could walk out where the sky was blue, or at least a civilized black. Somewhere with a nice little brook, or a rushing river, or something else, wet and calming. But a walk would do, even an urban, orangish walk among spiky things. Bilateral symmetry, planet dweller, she thought as she tried to stroll. 
she found herself hemmed in by crowds to an unusual degree, having to check her stride length so as not to overrun fellow by latterly symmetric planet dwellers. Sor wondered idly what had them out in such droves, and then froze in the middle of the walkway, forcing the crowd to divert around her. The festival! The festival for which a human diplomat was meant to do her bit. She shoved her way through the crowd. Almost nobody was going back towards her office, so there was no countervailing force for her to align herself with. She arrived, breathless and annoyed, and Difa's cheerful greeting smile did not help. Sor! Oh, good, you're back, said Difa. The festival's about to start. You have to do your bit, or there'll be trouble for all of us. Bother, said Sor. Can't you do it for me? There are a dozen things. Difa looked both sad and obstinate. They'll know I'm just an assistant. They didn't ask for an imperial assistant. I know they didn't, said Sor. Bother. Difa gave her a wan smile. Good job on sticking with regulations. Sor felt it would be beneath whatever shreds remained of her dignity to tell Difa what she could do with the regulations, particularly as it underscored the lack of the book for herself. You, she said, may come with me. Then, when I've done the bits I absolutely have to do, you can stick around and smile at them while I go off and... Do something useful, said Diva. I know. I didn't mean to. I know, said Diva. I know what I am. They teach you smiling in all the best schools. I'll come smile. I'm good at that. Sora let out a deep breath. Thank you. The two of them arrayed themselves in official imperial diplomatic regalia, which Sora had long felt should have been chosen for comfort rather than for its ability to impress the other species, particularly as the other species were often impressed by the strangest and most irrelevant things. But her own rank came with a lovely bright blue tunic, which, if not comfortable in combination with the rest of the regalia, at least brought out the more pleasant cinnamon undertones of her skin. Which, she thought amusedly, no one but herself would notice, but at least she would know. Difa glanced at her and automatically reached to straighten the sash Sora just put on. Sora gritted her teeth and let her. You know, that tunic doesn't look half bad on you, said Difa offhandedly. Thank you, said Sora, surprised. The two of them set off like diplomatic ships in full sail, parting the crowds of aliens around them with their official grandeur. The transits down to the planet were packed with festival-goers, but Sora's diplomatic status got them a separate transport, with Megnib squeezing in at the last minute, his finery askew. I love festivals, said Difa. We used to go back to Old Earth for the air festivals nearly every year when I was a child. It seemed like they were always having one when Mummy was in the mood to go, and they were so glad to see her. Megnib and Sora did not exchange glances. They didn't have to. Sora's part was mercifully brief. The launching of a kite, the waving from a balloon with other visiting diplomats. They offered her the opportunity to judge the entries for a radio-controlled flight contest. But she was forewarned that this was often used as a way to sneak things through off-planet customs, and the last thing she wanted was to be embroiled in a smuggling scandal, because she didn't remember exactly what counted as contraband and what did not. She left Difa on the cliff with the balloon launchers and went down to the plane below to think of what to do next, to find the book, or the kids, or both. It seemed that the aviation-mad crowd around her consisted entirely of the bilaterally symmetric, the natives of the planet, of course, 
but also most of the visitors. Curse you by lateral symmetry, she said aloud. One of the natives overheard her. Gentle visitor, if you wish to observe more unconventionally shaped aeronautics, we make those available in the pavilion yonder. Thank you, said Sor. But actually, I was... Thank you. As she followed the signs toward the unusual aeronautics exhibit, she noticed a vac-dweller in one of its planetary visitation bubbles. It was not the kind of vac-dweller like one and two, who had taken the children. But when she asked her common undertones to identify the race, it was one of the potential allies for the human empire. Probably she should approach it. Better it than trying to sell her superiors on an alliance with a race that had not only been used as a pawn in the taking of human children, but then gone and lost them. Respected sentient, she began, attempting to get its attention. The bubble turned ponderously, revealing what looked like a tangled set of blue snot strands within. It had eye stalks, at least, which gave Source some idea of where to look when she was talking to it. With one and two, the hard carapace gave her some notion of how the creature, creatures, she corrected herself, would function in their engineer native habitat. With this species, she had no idea. Was there also gas emission within the bubble, or did the variety of strands offer some means of locomotion? Surely conservation of momentum. Sora tried to pull her thoughts together as it regarded her. Ah, human companion, it intoned. Future ally. That remains to be. Your protocol guide has been invaluable to us, it said. We now know how to become your ideal ally, and we will follow it. Our Sor put a hand on the bubble's propelling device so it couldn't leave. Where do you know of our protocol guide? We recovered it from your embassy, said the vac-dweller serenely. You... Sor recovered herself. Among us, this is known as stealing. If you've read the book, you know that we'd turn a dim eye on such behavior. The vac-dweller made a gesture within its bubble that Sor interpreted as a shrug or some other form of indifference. In the long run, it will not matter. To me it does, said Sor. Where is my book now? The vac-dweller looked up with its hard eye stalks. We will deliver it to you when we are allies. That will not happen, said Sor. We'll report to station security that you have stolen human property, and they'll search your quarters for it. Then your protocols will be exposed to the security mammalians. They're already exposed to you, said Sor. Better the security team, with whom we already have a cordial relationship. The vac-dweller made a noise that the translator did not translate, and Sor found herself at a loss. They will not find it, it said. You substance breathers are all so limited. It would be pathetic if we didn't need an alliance, but alas, you fill the galaxy like photons, interfering with everything and leaving traces of yourself wherever you go. Sor sniffed. I'm not entirely without resources, and the human empire will not have its hand forced with blackmail. You may have read our protocols, but you have not understood them, not in the least. Inside, she quailed. Regardless of the outcome with the vac-dwellers, she did not look forward to having to confess to her superiors that the book had fallen into foreign hands on her watch. She thought for a moment and then calmed one and two. An alliance between us is not yet hopeless, she said. 
The denizens of Mu Aragai's vacuum sphere have stolen our protocols, and they feel that substance breathers will not be able to find it. Can you use your own vacuum abilities to search for us? We would regard it kindly. The object is of what description? said Tu. It is brilliantly green, said Sor, hoping that the translator would give them the appropriate wavelengths for their perception. It's a volume of press plant matter with printing upon it, like a book, but as a physical object with pages. How eccentric, said Tu. It is a small oddity of ours. We would value its return highly and would particularly look favorably upon an alliance with a race that could assist us in this matter. She paused. Is that clear enough? Understood, it said. Our time with your young has improved our comprehension substantially. Thank you so much, said Zor. She severed the comlink and scanned the crowd again. Instead of human children, she found Magnib. I was just about to calm you, he said. The Felbjorn 37 group. They're allied with... Oh, you won't know the name. They're not here, but they're one of the gas giants groups that's fighting a war with the Extra Jovian League for control of Sector 96. A secret alliance and an active war, said Sor. Just what we need in a new ally. No wonder they were trying to make us think they were the good guys quick to sign the treaty. They've realized the Vac Dwellers were completely ingenuous, so they've sent the kids off to paid locals instead. I suppose that narrows down the bilateral symmetry to, oh, an entire planet and half the station. No, it's better than that, Magnib said. I threatened them. Sor stared at him. Her diplomatic training failed her most often when she was dealing with her fellow diplomats, and this was one of those times. You, you, not the human empire, said Magnib. Just me, personally. A duel? Magnib, I know you can't check the protocols, but Chapter 29, Section 6 is pretty clear on embassy personnel's restrictions on ritual violence, even on worlds that permit it, which I told them I'd tell you what they were up to. You did tell me what they were up to. They don't know that. I explained how they were likely to start a war if you knew it was them. Your wrath would be like unto... I don't even remember what I told them your wrath would be like unto. But it was a lot of wrath, I'll tell you what. I... I don't want a war, said Sora. Are you going to force me into a war? Her mind was whirling. If they had to go to war with the methy breathers of the Felbjorn group, which of their regional methy breather allies could they convince of the advantage? Would the inner system allies want to join in just for fun? And could she stomach starting a war with allies who thought war was fun? The more she thought about it, the more miserable Sor became. But Magnib was shaking his head, grinning. Of course not. I'm not such a fool as all that. Wars get us demoted. It's one of the first things you taught me when I started the job. I made the strength and ire of the human empire and its allies very clear to these miscreants. They told me the cliff dancers have lib and the glide racers have gens. They have orders to space them if they aren't retrieved within two hours, to dispose of the evidence, and now the Felbjorns don't know how to reach them to cancel the order. Cliff dancers? Two hours? Lib is up there, said Magnib, pointing. There were crowds of locals darting in jetpack glory around the edge of the cliff. Sor squinted up. That one isn't furry. She got her calm to zoom in to see a stocky, angry teenage girl being held by a worried, fuzzy local. The human figure broke away from her captor and tried to back away, but the cliff edge was not as stable as far as they had hoped. Several chunks of rock fell, and then larger pieces of what had been solid land. 
the slender young human stumbled and fell. Sor closed her eyes, her stomach roiling. She'd been too late. It's Defa, screamed Magnib. Sor looked up agape. The plummeting figure was followed by another in a jetpack. She never imagined her assistant knowing how to maneuver anything so complicated and mechanical as a jetpack. She swooped and grabbed Lib, zooming upwards as the crowd roared in triumph. Did they think it was staged, Sor wondered? Or did they just not care? And then landed, depositing her burden carefully on the plain below the cliff. They used to go to air festivals, Sor mumbled. Every chance they got, said Magnib, who had seated himself involuntarily on the ground and seemed inclined to stay there until he got his breath back. Defa! Whoever would a... Defa! Just wait, she'll tell us something completely ridiculous about the comportment of the person she stole the jetpack from, said Sor. Magnib shook his head. I hope she does, and get the world back to normal. Sor was more concerned with the immediate values of normal. She kept watching the plane. Their own hired guards hurried to defend the girl, reaching them well before local security, and Sor breathed a sigh of relief. There might still be ruffled fur for Deepa's jetpack use, but she could smooth that down later. She turned back to the next task at hand, finding which team of glider racers had a small human in their pit crew. Let me through, she said. The glider pilots looked at her in shock. It's the human who... Her calm beamed. Oh, she said. What? We have found and destroyed the target object, said the vac dweller. We hope this is satisfactory to you. Destroyed? Who told you to destroy it? Sor had completely lost control of her voice. Human, said one of the local glider pilots. The vac dweller's voice on the comm said, We read it and followed the last instruction. It's last, it's last. Damn it, she shouted. Okay, okay. Better than having it around, but read by two races worth of... Okay, thank you, okay. Human, are you looking for your young? Said the local pilot diffidentially. Because I fear it has upset those worthy compatriots of mine in some way. Sor whirled around. Have you got a blaster? Give it to me, she demanded. The pilot handed it over without a murmur. The crew whose glider had purple stripes was trying to stifle some kind of noise that sounded unfortunately familiar to her. Jens, she shouted. What? shouted a young human voice. Sor held the blaster on the aviators. The boy, or I shoot, and I have diplomatic immunity. Anything I do to you won't be prosecuted. Let me have the child. We agreed to space it, said one of the gold-fed locals. We were well paid for... What did I say about diplomatic immunity? Be well advised that whatever loophole you propose to use will not be looked upon fondly by your own race's security. I could easily forget the markings of the crew that had them. Or then again, I could leave evidence with blaster scorchings all over it. It's up to you. They waved Jens forward and Sora motioned him behind her as fast as she could, keeping the blaster out the whole way. Come with us, please, and you'll be safe, said Sora. But I want to see the glider races, protested young Jens. Never mind that, young sir, said Sora. I wanted to. Sora grabbed his arm as gently as she could manage. Young sir, were you any older, I would leave you to your glider races and whatever fate befell you there, and interspecies war be damned. But you were not, in fact, any older. And the director, your mother, would use my hide to make boots if I let the methane breathers space you. His eyes went wide. Mama's a vegan, he said. 
then noticed the irrelevancy and put his hand in hers, as though he was a much smaller child. I don't want to be spaced. I'm sorry. And you shan't be spaced, said Sor. Now, come with me. His hand was dry and warm. They pushed carefully through the festival crowds, a troop of guards closing around them as they walked. Would they really have spaced me? asked Jens after a time. They wanted us to think so, certainly, said Sor. Do you believe them? Young sir, they nearly did it with your sister, if my assistant hadn't saved her. With Lib? No one would dare space Lib. Sor closed her eyes, safe in the transport vehicle. All three children in the book, well, if not recovered, at least not in unfriendly hands. I think you'll find, young Jens, that a great many people will dare a great many things you currently find unthinkable. And then the guards let Lib and Reeker through, and they flung their arms around Jens in the rough way of siblings who have been badly frightened and don't know how to express their fear or their happiness at its resolution. We'll tell Mother how you took care of us, said Lib over Jens's head, even though we were awful. You could have been much worse, said Sor honestly. Most of it wasn't your fault. We'll tell Mother, Lib insisted. Sor stepped outside to take a breath of air under the watchful eye of the guards. The festival crowds passed by, oblivious, which was just as she had wanted it. It was a day without public major diplomatic incident, which was almost the same thing as a good day. Almost. She would be even more relieved when the director's children were on a shuttle back to their home station. But it was almost over. It was enough. She shuddered to think of what amendments the next edition of the radioactive etiquette book would arrive with, or what her superiors would say to the news of its destruction. High above, beyond what Sor could see, even with enhancements, the torn, bilious green cover floated in orbit, neither escaping nor falling back to Earth, its back-page legend instructing all unwary diplomats and pilots, Use your best judgment. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Marissa. Marissa, thank you so much. There you go. Starship Sova's 316 put to bed. What can I say? Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly have. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone who's taken part and who's helped out putting this show together. You've been stars. Look out for next week's show. And just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. And as you know, we've had a few narrations by... Am I... <laughs> on. Just one. Jack Smith or John Smith or... 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Claire, you know what I mean? That's the... There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Marissa. Marissa, thank you so much. So that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around. No, you'll not stick around, man. <laughs> Listen to it, man. Why do you want to stick around with it? <laughs> Things done in God, you're just going to stop. Oh.